This is a piece by a guy named Larry Taunton. Larry who? Never heard of her. What sort of a man is he? Pick from Bama. A man like any other, but more so. Well, I thought he was dead. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Let's light this candle. Welcome in to the Larry Alex Taunton Show. We are glad you are here. Larry, how are you? You know, I'm great because college football really gets cranked up this weekend, and I'm pretty pumped about that. I mean, you were just regaling me with how many games, when do they start? Next five days in a row. Next five days in a row. So we have college football all weekend. The left has not yet destroyed college football. I'm sure that's coming. So I am going to enjoy it while I can. And uh, this weekend, we have a big shindig. Uh, at our uh, at our house, and so that'll be a lot of fun. That will be a lot of fun. It's also um, opening season. It's uh, opening weekend for dove season, so that's that's going on too. I thought you were going to say duck. That's how little I know about hunting. It's okay. I, I don't people know do about hunt, it. People I mean, do hunt them. It's not this weekend, but they do hunt them. So you wouldn't be that far off. That they're both birds. Okay. I mean, and you do shoot them. Fowl, yes, and you do shoot them. So if you and were to. Shoot some dove. <laughs> do you shoot the dove or the doves? Do you eat them? Yeah, yeah, most definitely uh, eat them. I'm not a big fan of them, but my boys are. Um, my uh, my oldest son Michael, he likes to, you know, he's likes to clean them and to prepare a big meal uh, of all that's okay. not me, not big on dove uh, or pheasant for that matter, but. This is an exciting weekend if you're a man or a woman who likes football or hunting. This is very exciting. Yes. I mean, literally so exciting. You know, last <laughs> weekend we had the TV on and, you know, our team, well, I, we now are Tar Heel football fans, yeah, yeah. even though Roll Tide. The quarterback checked but five touchdowns last he week. He was amazing. He looked great. Um, Mr. May was amazing, and his brother's a great guy. He's amazing as well. Yes, they have a actually an interesting game this weekend against Appalachian State. Yes, they do. And which they're, we they're will win. One point underdogs. We'll win, but it is a very. Um, I picked strong, App State in my pool. You know, why did you pick App State? <laughs> Who are you? You're in Carolina colors. This is true. I. Uh, Although it is you true, and you have a son, you have a thing. son there, but he doesn't play on the football team, it's so true, I don't feel doesn't. like I'm I'm being. You you're know, not. You're not. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm being un, un, unfaithful to your family and not making that pick. I just I went with it because. You're looking, you're looking for in a pool. And just to be clear, there's no gambling going on here. We do a pool every year where um, the winner is taken to Who dinner. Who is we? It's me, my boys, a few other people participate. Okay. okay. And the winner, um, you know, gets to choose a restaurant of his choice, and everybody takes them out. And I have to say, I've won the pool the last two years, and so far. I've not been taken to dinner for those two previous years. Okay. So I do believe I'm owed a uh, very nice steak dinner, but it's a lot of fun and uh, just gives us something to, you know, interact with each other during the week and, and argue about, but you're looking for games where you can get ahead. Okay. You know, so it wouldn't be wise for instance, to take Utah state over Alabama this, this weekend, you're probably not going to win that one. But most people are going to take North Carolina. App State is playing at home, and I think you know they're going to be they're going to be jacked. Probably not going to win that game, 
But App State is a dangerous little football team. Yeah. And I feel like if I have a chance to gain a game, it's in that it's in that matchup. Yeah. So that that's why I'm going that way. So uh That's what, what Jesus th- would do. Obviously. <laughs> I mean, and then what do you think uh what do you think the game, Alabama's game? I'm just trying to think of a score, like sixty three to twelve. I mean, what do you it's think? It's gonna be it's gonna be ugly. You it's think gonna, so? It's going to be, yeah, but poor Utah State is, is going to get I feel bad they're going to fly all that way Yeah, and do all the things, you know, whatever. But still, it's going to yeah, be fun Utah because State all is, is right in the world when Alabama football is on the TV. Yes. It just feels better. Yes, it does. It feels better. Okay. And they're ranked number one. I mean, of also course. not a surprise, of course. Not a shock. What about, I don't even know who Auburn's playing. Who cares? I don't care. Who cares? I actually do know who they're playing. They're who not are playing, they playing a Mercer, you know, and you're kind of oh, going Mercer. Wow. Mercer. I mean, Utah State is at least Division One. Mercer is not. So all respect to the people who go to Mercer. Yep. Uh, however, you're not going to win. And no, I'm so sorry. No, you're not going to win. But and it's OK. Well done for trying. Yep. Right. Kudos to trying. All right. So football, hunting. What else does a fall look like, even though it's not fall? It is just September, and it doesn't get yeah, cool not until in the November. But what else do we do? Like, what does a, a southern fall look like? Yeah, we're here in the American South, and in the American South, summer extends to about the 1st of October. Yeah. You know, so it remains quite warm uh, well into, you know, what most people would consider uh, to be fall in other parts of the country. Although I say that, and last night I was sitting on the porch, and it was 70 degrees, Really? 70. It was shockingly cool last night after a hot day. You know, it had been about 90. So that was a massive temperature swing, but it was quite lovely. Um, fall in the South, it's football, it's family, it's the leaves turning later than most places in the country. It's, um, you know, it's my favorite. It's my favorite time of the year. You know, Andy Williams says it's the most wonderful <laughs> time of the. Well, for me, that most wonderful time goes straight up to New Year's Day. Mm-hmm. I love the fall. Yeah. the The fall in the South is is beautiful. It's wonderful. The leaves turning. The, you know, all of the uh, um, the sports fest. You know that you can't you can't resist. And here, of course. This is very southern too. Is our football is social? Oh yes. You know it, it, the ladies love it, not necessarily because they're paying attention to the game, but because you know there are all these football parties and people come and you know the the ladies sit in the you know the kitchen or on the on the porch or something and they're having their conversation where where men are choking each other over the game, <laughs> but it's just a it's just it's a it's just a fun time of the year and it's a much more social time of the year in our family actually than summer. Which yeah. you would think summer is, but it it's really the fall. Well, and you know, I think something else is very southern. I was talking to somebody, and they said that their child was very young, but they were going to go ahead and just take them down to the other school for the weekend, yeah. and they weren't going to go into down by the, the gates game of hell. by the gates of hell. Uh, they were not going to go into the game, but they were going to go take the child and introduce the child around and visit their friends, and then come back. And yeah. I thought, as you do, be, I mean, this is like a three-year-old child. And I thought, this is exactly what we do is we get them immersed early, but relationship But that's like taking so your child to Auburn fun. and indoctrinating them at three is like, to me, like indoctrinating them into Sharia. You know what I mean? It's like... It's very bad. I mean, you know, a uh, uh, Mormonism, you know I mean? Really, I mean, 
they should meet Jesus, and that's and Jesus is not in Auburn. I just I joke. The loveliest little village on the plain, Auburn, is a, is a lovely town, a lovely city. And I'll also have to say this: from a Christian point of view, Auburn is a much safer environment than Bama. Yeah. The University of Alabama is pretty much a party central, um, but uh, um, Auburn is a is a beautiful, beautiful it campus, is. beautiful school, it is. kind of a lousy football team, but hey, but maybe they try, year. they try very hard. I mean, you don't know. It could. But this could be their year. This could be their year. You know, we're probably in the most dangerous and controversial territory that we've ever been in on this show. It's so funny. It's so funny. I, you know, I'm all the articles. So many comments. You know, all the articles that I write. I may have said this on the show. Maybe not. But I, I don't shrink. Anybody who follows my work knows I don't shrink from addressing hard topics. Right. I mean. We've gone into quite literal debates on atheism, on gay marriage. You know, there was an effort to shut us down. One of the the stars of Glee, Glee, that TV show, came into our office blasting us. I mean, walked straight in off of the street blasting us. That How dare us do a, a, a debate on gay marriage? That issue was over. There's no debate, um, according to her. And uh, we've, of course, you know, uh, waited in on, again, literal debates on Al Jazeera, on CNN, on Islam and so forth. But you know what? A few years ago, I wrote an article for the New York Post titled, like, Five Reasons or Ten Reasons Tom Brady is Overrated. And it caused a firestorm. I which remember was, that article. Which was so funny. And yet, you know who supported me in that article? Tom Brady. No, no, of course, <laughs> definitely not Tom Brady, but New Yorkers. Really? It actually, excuse me, I take that back. I wrote the article for the um, American Spectator, and the New York Post editorial board says Larry Taunton has said over at the American Spectator that Tom Brady is overrated. Well done. <laughs> and of course, it's because New York, you know, if you're a, a New York Jets or New York Giants fans, you hate Tom Brady, you know, because yeah. you know he was at, at the, the the um the Patriots, you know, out the of other Boston. team, yeah. So anyway, and then Brady had to go and win another Super Bowl or two, and uh, and I had to retract that. But anyway, that yeah. article, Tom, if you were watching, I'm sorry, I'm now your You're fan. Great. I'm now your fan because I've since discovered I think he's kind of a conservative. He's a great guy. He's yeah, a I family man. That's the impression I get. Yeah, I, I really like him. Uh, I, we didn't watch all of the Man in the Arena, but I would like to. I don't even know what that is. Uh, but documentary I'm about him. About him. I think it's like a six or eight parter. People who watch it say it's phenomenal. Um, he's very wise and has great insight. And I really appreciate him yeah, as a person. I suspect he's a he's a real good guy. And uh, so, no offense, Tom Brady. Um, by the by, the way, we are a five hundred one c three nonprofit, and if you could stroke us a check um, to keep this show going, uh, we'd be very grateful. And I will write <laughs> another article titled 10 Reasons Why I Love," or just one one reason why I love Tom Brady because he stroked us a big check. That that makes a lot of sense. Yep, absolutely. I bet he's getting right on it right now. I bet he is. I bet he's writing it right now. Okay, he's asking so his wife for the checkbook. He. You know what? I think Giselle, she's in charge. I think she probably I think she pretty is, well runs that household. Which I'd like to meet her as well. Yeah. Um, I would like fangirl a little bit, but I'm not. I'm not going to. So we'll just wait on that check. Okay. And uh, the comment back from Tom and Giselle. So we have a great show today. I'm excited to get to it. Um, but before we get to the topic of surviving conflict, 
and reading some pretty hilarious things that people have to say. We'll take a break. Yeah. And then we'll come right back. So don't go anywhere. ABS, Automatic Braking System, also known as Amy Beth Shaver, pumps the brakes. Welcome back. All right. Yeah, it's time for the Amy Beth Shaver ABS, Automatic Braking System, moment of the week. So what has got you triggered this week? How about customer service? Okay, I, I think I know where this is going. Tell me. Well... My sweet youngest child had a phone and it was dropped. And I put off until the last minute repairing that phone. And then when I called to find out, and it was shattered because a little fella dropped her phone. She didn't even do it. So I thought I'm just going to put this off for like months and months. But before school starts, I realized, and she presents to me very beautifully, mom, I need my phone because I have to do homework on my phone, like calculator, whatever. I'm like, oh, I probably should fix that. I'll get right on it. But it's the baby child, and things don't get done like they would have with the first one. Yeah, by the way, I have to say that's pretty clever. Not saying, Mom, I need to text my friends. Mom, I need to be on Snapchat. Mom, I need the calculator. So I think you were played, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> she did just get a 99 on her Algebra 2 okay, well, homework. All right. Well, she deserved um, it. But, but I still think no, she played you. She but played anyway. me. She's the baby, of course. They, yeah. That's what they do. That's yeah. their degree is in playing the parents. Yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> I mean, is that not just true? But I have to call customer service. And I don't know about you, and I could be the only one, but customer service is the place where we talked about not pivoting toward our humful, yeah, sure. human sinful nature. Yeah. That brings it out of me. I choose to allow it to bring it out of me. So you're in the, speaking to someone in the Philippines or in India? Yeah, I didn't know what they said. And in fact, I might have made about 12 to 15 phone calls. Yeah. In order to get it repaired, because there's this grid yeah. that you can't get Layer, through. You just can't get through that. Get, so finally, one of the trips that I'm literally making out here, I'm talking to the person and I'm saying, I need to talk to a person. So you're saying this is a test of your Christian. So this is a test witness. of my faith and my witness, <laughs> and I have to get it back together. And finally, I say to the person on the phone, Please, I need to talk to a person who is the supervisor. Are you the supervisor? I no longer assume that they're not. I just need a supervisor because I really just need this fixed. It's not working, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Well, she maintained herself, and I calmed myself back down by the time I had crested the hill, and I realized this is just a stupid phone. But by the time I did get to another customer service rep, this went on for an entire week. They had in their records that I called so many times <laughs> because I couldn't get it fixed that they were going to help me immediately. And by the end of the phone call, we promise we'll solve your problem. And so they stayed on the phone with me for a good while. So it started off poorly and ended well. So I would like to say thank you, customer service, for teaching me about how much I don't know about Jesus and my faith. But number two, for customer service for redeeming a totally terrible situation. Yeah. Well... I uh, could tell many stories on that issue, so I'm with you. I understand how frustrating that is. This last week, I was put into a phone tree, had to call five times. My truck was getting worked on at a dealership. I was having difficulty talking to the to the actual people who had my truck to to find out when you know is it going to be ready. I need to come and pick it. So I everybody out there listening can identify. I mean, they're shaking their one. head. Yep. I mean, absolutely. Avoid it if you can. Yeah. Avoid customer service if you can. Yeah. But if you get good service, you got to talk about yeah. it. 
So we have something that is going to be fun. I don't know if this will be a regular part of the show, but you have listener, reader questions and comments that I think we could go through. Yeah, let's do. Um, because they're great. And some of them are hilarious. Yeah. So I'll save those as you have for the end. But the first one, which I think a lot of people want to know this, is how do you go about studying an issue as you prepare to write or speak about it? That's a good question. Um, I, you know, my academic background, more than a seminary, you know, say background, and, and there's a difference between the two. Seminary is a professional degree. It's not an academic degree. And I was taught to approach an issue from an academic point of, uh, point of view, which isn't always superior, but it is when studying an academic issue. And so for me, um, take for instance, when we were dealing with the new atheists in a very big way, that means I'm really not that interested in going to the Christian living section of the bookstore and reading what some Christian author has to say about them. I read them. I read what the new atheists are saying. I go to the primary sources. I'm all about primary source material. So I spend my time reading the primary sources. I want to read what someone else says that Richard Dawkins said. I want to read Richard Dawkins. I want to talk to Richard Dawkins. I want to engage him um, or people like him. The same with uh, uh, Islamic thought or some other issue. I want to read the primary source material and spending a lot of time in that. So that's one of the things that I do. Um, another another thing that I do as as part of preparation is that I uh, am of, of course taking very careful notes, and I'm trying not to be reactionary on an issue. Um, if you follow my work, you'll notice that I haven't published an article in, gosh. I probably haven't published an article in probably three weeks, maybe more. Maybe it's been a little longer than that. And it's because I have been thinking on a very, very difficult issue. And I've been studying, I've been prepping on it. And every time I sit down at the computer to start that article, I go, it's still not there. I still need to think on this a little. A little. It's not fully baked in my mind as yet. And I'm, I'm now at the, at, at the point where I feel pretty confident on, on the issue itself but now I'm thinking about how I, how I frame it, you know. So how do I put it in a way? I, I feel like what we specialize at at Fixed Point Foundation is taking very difficult issues and putting them down um, where it's understandable to lay people, mm -hmm. you know. Where and so I have to think about what analogies I'm going to use, and also this issue is so difficult that I think I'm going to have to make it a multi-parter. Like maybe a three or four part oh, wow. series, okay. so the, uh, you know you're you're sitting and you're thinking about the shape that this thing is going to take because a single six hundred, eight hundred word, thousand word essay is not going to be sufficient. So that's the way I approach the issues. So let me ask you this as a follow up: when you're writing and you're saying it's not fully baked, yeah, do you know it's fully baked when you know how it begins and ends? Or is there just a moment where you say it's done, it's ready? Well, I think I I think of something J.I. Packer said. And he was speaking of doctrine, but this could apply to more than just doctrine. He says you don't know uh, uh, doctrine well enough if you can't explain it to a child. Okay. 
Uh, so it, whatever it is that you're trying to explain, if you can't explain it to a child, then you don't know it yeah. well enough. And I think that's true, not just for, for theology, not just for doctrinal issues or the five points of Calvinism or the Westminster Confession or whatever it is that you, uh, you adhere to. Um, I think that applies to the new atheism. I think that applies to... Uh, you know, any, you know, uh, you know, if we're talking about, you know, the the sexual perversion we're seeing in the culture, not by the way that I want to be having that conversation with a child, right. Right. but you get my meaning. Yes, I do. So for me, I know I'm there when I am landing on analogies, illustrations that I go, that's it. Okay, yes. And then I test them on people. I say, what about this? What about that? So for instance, in the last few days, I've had conversations with friends of mine who are a university of professors um, and saying, okay, I want to lay out for you a theory that I have. This is something that I'm thinking about as it applies to fascism, as it applies to Marxism, which sound like big, heady topics and ideas that the average person listening out there kind of goes, oh, Mm-hmm. Well, they matter. They matter in a very big way. And so I'm I'm talking with them and letting them push on it mm. and try to poke like holes that. in what okay. I'm saying so that I don't embarrass myself by going out there and, and putting something out there that hasn't really been tested. So it, it's... It needs to be, uh, particularly on on a topic like this, where I'm I maybe haven't written as extensively on it as I have maybe on some other issue where I feel like I'm very well fortified. I know this issue. I've tested it. So I I make sure I put it out there with with friends and I say, okay, you know, over over a uh, you know an, an an evening on the porch, I say, okay, here we go. Here's my idea, and they sit and they listen very carefully, and they might say. Mm, nonsense. And I'm going to tell you why. And, and I may come away from that going, okay, well, mm-hmm. I think they're right. I, th- I think I'm wrong on this issue. And I, I need to abandon that idea or they're trying to poke holes in it. And at the end, we both agree. Okay. We, we think we're on to something here. This has validity mm-hmm. and uh, it's worth pursuing. Yeah. So, so that's what I do. That's very helpful. Because I think people are watching, listening, and some of them are new writers or they're young and that is very helpful because I, I don't think we know enough about how things take place and the thought process and the working it out. So thank you for that. And yeah, that it isn't so, just sitting down and writing. You no, know, you can't do that. It isn't just sitting down and writing it. You know, there has to be a recipe, you know, before yes. you, you put something in the oven or yes. in, in the pan. And that that's the writing part is the fastest part. Yes. So when people ask me how long did it take you to write, you know, um, one of your books, well, the writing itself might actually take, because when I sit down to write, I'm, I'm a little different than, than some writers in this regard. I can write 16, 18 hours a day when I'm in the zone. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be bothered. I don't want to be interrupted. Uh, I just keep going. Lori brings me sandwiches, you know, coffee, whatever, and I just keep going. And then I take a break and go for a bike ride or something, you know, to kind of clear my mind a little bit and get more clarity on the next chapter or the next thing I'm working on. The actual writing of a book, I might finish a book in three months. Okay. But I would never say that I wrote a book in three months. Okay. I was typing for three months, but I probably thought on on each one of these books quite literally for years Mm -hmm. before I ever got to that stage. So it's a, it's a, it's a lengthy process, you know, um, make reference to my good friend, um, John Lennox, um, 
you know, here's a guy with PhDs from uh, Oxford, Cambridge University of Wales. And somebody will say to me, well, you know, um, we're going to give him an honorarium of X, you know, because he only spoke for 30 minutes. And I said, did it take him 30 minutes to get those three PhDs? I don't think so. Right. It took a little bit longer than that. So there's there's decades of learning that that go into something perhaps that you're working on. Thank you for that. And I, whoever asked that question, I love that question. So Thank you. In, inside the mind of Larry yeah. Taunton. Okay. So <laughs> scary place. <laughs> two, two questions in one. This is funny. Uh, why is Amy Beth sitting so far down? I'm not today. I'm on a pillow. Yes. Thanks for that suggestion. <laughs> when I saw that, I thought, you know, well, that actually is a, a legitimate point. Uh, we were sitting on stools that are the same height, but of course I'm taller than, than you are. So it made you look like you're, you know, just, just, just way down. Um, so I'm glad we did that. And what is this like? Yeah. Us. Yeah. This is funny. This is, this is inside the mind of Larry Taunton too, because this light is me. I wanted this light here. And it is because, because I am colorblind, my eyes are hypersensitive to white light. These types of lights that we have here. I, I come into a house and I'm switching off lights or I'm dimming them. Um, I wear, I wear, wear sunglasses sometimes inside. I don't even bother to take my sunglasses off when I go into Walmart or I go into Costco or something like that, just because the bright lights bother me. The soft amber light of this lamp just warms me. I just, <laughs> I just like it. And I call it, and see, we have two of these. There's this one and we have another one that I like to read by. And I just love it. And it looks like vertebrae. It does look like vertebrae. I, I, okay. Or um, or a sea anemone, you know, or something like that. I don't know what it's supposed to be. Maybe it's odd. A viewer said, lose the light. And we probably will the next show because I'm finally outvoted on this. But I got to tell you, I love the light. <laughs> <laughs> and now you know. So all the things you don't want to know. Uh, the Grace Effect is one of my all-time favorite books. Have you considered <laughs> updating it and republishing it? Seems relevant for now more than ever. Sorry, I thought I turned my notifications off. Yeah, I uh, um, I have considered revising it and updating it. Um, the the problem is with the publisher because the way these things work is the publisher owns the book. Okay. And if the publisher doesn't want to allow me to do that, then they don't have to allow me to do that. Okay. And, um, you know, it's it's the problem that, that musicians and writers face is you, you know, I'm talking to a member of the Allman Brothers who tells me that they don't own their own music. You know, somebody can go out there and do whatever they want to with their own music. And sometimes that is the case with authors is that they they actually own it. And uh, it makes it very difficult when you want to do something else with it. But I have thought about that. I agree with that that viewer. I think that book, I think it's the most important of my books. Uh, it's, it was my first book. It was labeled an adoption book, which hurt it yeah. in terms of its sales. Men weren't interested in reading an adoption book. Except my husband read it and he loved it. <clears throat> well, thank you. Thank you. Um, but I... Uh, but I think it's the most important of my books because I'm arguing about the importance of the Christian faith as a as a bulwark against godless ideologies like Marxism and socialism. Right. That's what that book is about, and uh, I would really like to revise it and uh, and reissue it. You know, it's interesting. I was I uh, was watching this past week, and this is worth. I may actually reference this later in the show for a completely different reason. But I watched on, <clears throat> I think it was on Netflix. It could have been something else. A um, a little 
biopic on uh, Gordon Lightfoot, hmm. you know, the musician. Yeah. And Lightfoot says that he, um, he's, you know, he's, if you could read my mind, oh, what a story my thoughts could tell. That's, that's Gordon Lightfoot. And the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, very, very famous. Sundown is another one of his famous songs. And he says one of his early albums, you know, he, he wasn't really known. And the, um, his, this album came out and it didn't do particularly well. And he said the publishers immediately, excuse me, the, uh, what I want to say, the record company just immediately buried it. <laughs> and he said, but there was a, uh, an AM station somewhere, I, I don't know where, that the guy loved um, If You Could Read My Mind, which was on that album. And he said that guy played it again song. and again and again and again. He said suddenly the song took off. And he said he got a call from the record label that said, we're going to reissue the album but change the name of the album to If You Could Read My Mind. Oh. We're going to make it look like it's a new album when it's actually an old album. Brilliant. And uh, Gordon Lightfoot said, you know, I was very ornery. He said, nobody messes with my art. I flew out there um, to meet them in Los Angeles, told them, no, you are not changing the name of the album. He said, they patted me on the head, put me on a plane, sent me away, changed the uh, <laughs> changed the name of the album. And he said, and it, it went gold. And he said, and after that, I never said another word. But it's a funny thing about books, same kind of difference as me, has a very yeah. similar kind of story. That book, um, my editor, who was the editor um, for that book, says that there was an effort to sell that book, that manuscript, to multiple uh, publishers who did not want it. And finally, Thomas Nelson, um, now HarperCollins, took it kind of reluctantly. The book came out, didn't do particularly well, but there was somebody, I think, in a, like a, a Books a Million or something, some, some bookstore manager in a place like Dallas loved the book and built displays of it and just kept it out there. And like two years after publication, the book went bonkers and then became a movie and so forth. So it's funny how these things kind of go. So maybe we reissue the grace effect, and we call it something like, if you could read my mind. <laughs> That's, of course, what's going to happen. What a story my thoughts could tell about socialism. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, a few more comments before we take a break. Loved the shows on suffering and the video on Marxism. Thanks for what you two do. Uh, I read your article. I hated it. Professor Richard Dawkins. <laughs> now, I have to comment on that one. That is a comment from... <laughs> Biologist, evolutionary biologist, <laughs> so evolutionary biologist, uh, and professional atheist Richard Dawkins at Oxford University. He read a piece that I had written. Now, honestly, I thought he might like the article because I the article <laughs> clearly not. I <laughs> I published an article called "Richard Dawkins is Right: You Are What You Are," and uh, it was because Rick Dawkins, who is a biologist, yeah, had said on Twitter about transgenderism, I'm sorry, you aren't what you think you are. You are what you are. Right. You are biologically male or female. Doesn't matter how you feel. Well, he was trashed on Twitter for saying that. Uh, you know, For so, telling the truth. And so I said, Richard Dawkins is right. But I also went on to say in the article, he's reaping the whirlwind, meaning meaning that the children of the revolution that he helped start have taken his ideas to their logical consequences, which is to nonsense. 
utter utter godlessness. So before I published the article, I and I know Richard and I maintained contact with him. I sent the article to Richard and I said, Hey, you know, what's your opinion? Would you would you <laughs> would you change anything? And he wrote back, he said, I read it, I hated it. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So there you go. So there's a comment from Richard Dawkins about my writing. I think I'll put that on the back. I think I will reissue the Grace Effect and put on the back Richard Dawkins. I hated it, you know, which is actually be, a kind of endorsement. Sure, of the book. it's going to be a bestseller that yeah, way. Yeah, it will be. It, it, I mean, it already is. Okay, so bleep you, Larry. Uh, yeah, well, there. Thank I you get, for that. I get a number of those. Thank um, you for that. Uh, someone is asking. All right, two more questions. How was Professor Lennox? Well, let me say this very quickly. <laughs> it is amazing what people will say in anonymity. It is. It's like being in the car. It you know, is. people you know go you by and give whatever. you the finger. Uh, they wouldn't do that to you in the line mm -hmm. at, at the grocery store, but they will do it when they feel that they're anonymous. And um, and it's it's incredible the the viciousness of people. The things they will say on social media, or they'll they'll email us, you know, to our, to our website, and uh, because they didn't like an article or something, rather than constructing an argument, they just they just drop an f bomb on you and uh, uh, or or say some of the most vicious things. It's incredible. But anyway, Professor Lennox, he is um, he. He's improving modestly, you know, from his stroke, and um, and we're we're glad to hear that. And what was the final thing? What is your opinion of the World Economic Forum? I hated it. <laughs> um, the uh, The World Economic Forum is a topic that we will be addressing in a very big way, um, but I'm not quite there yet. And and this comes back to the to the opening question: How do you go about studying an issue, preparing um, for an issue? I have to I have to say this. Um, sometimes studying the kind of issues that we address on a show like this, uh, in my books and in my writing, they require you to do a deep dive on utter godlessness. And it takes you to a very dark place. I remember the night before um, I debated uh, Christopher Hitchens in Billings, Montana. It felt like, you know, I could see in the wee hours of the night demons crawling out of the mm. out of the woodwork um and it's because you've spent so much time in that godless ideology you're reading them as i say if you're going to study an issue you need to know what what the the most respected proponents of that ideology are who are they what are they saying you need to know that and so you know after spending so much time reading the new atheist garbage and it's assumed, you know, godlessness. By that I mean a, a world less God, a world without right. God. It's a very unhappy and disturbing place to be. And now I feel like I'm going into that, that depressing place again um, as I read Klaus Schwab, you know, the, the chairman of the World Economic Forum, as I read some of the theorists uh, who have contributed to this ideology as I watch some of their videos. And I want to be clear, it's not because they're saying, let's eat children, or it's 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 not overtly evil. There's something very Stepford about it, as I was saying to you off air, that it has a they're all smiles and they use they've perfected the language of a, a seductive propaganda that sounds so benign. The, I mean, this is their slogan. I mean, is this not a the, one of the creepiest slogans ever? 
you will own nothing and you will be happy. Does, does that not feel like it came straight out of Animal Farm or 1984 yes. or Brave New World? Yes, it does. It, you will own nothing and you will be happy. And I will explain what they mean by owning nothing when we do get in um, to that issue. But their, the, the, their videos are creepy. And I'll give you an example of one. They had a video during the pandemic, and they quickly pulled it down because I think they got trashed over it. But it was a, a video that was showing empty streets in, like, say, Chicago yes. or New York or, yes. you know, or London or somewhere. And there's, like, no one in the streets. And this drone is, you know, is, is going through all these places. And this, this creepy voice comes on and says... Um, that the world is is healing from humanity, kind of the plague of humanity. Look at look at our oceans. Look at the wildlife. Look at look at how the earth is healing from our presence. And you're thinking, could you possibly be any more? Uh, I started to say drone deaf. Um, that that maybe has some potential kind of to be used in an article somewhere, but tone. Deaf. Could you possibly be any more tone deaf? And then add to that that Klaus Schwab is this, he's like a real life Bond villain. You know, I mean, he speaks with this German accent and he, you picture him petting a cat like Donald Pleasance <laughs> in, a, in a Bond movie. And the guy says things like, you'll own nothing and you will be happy. You know, you, you, you listen to him and he's creepy. Yeah. So we're going to be addressing this issue and I'm just going to tease it by saying this. Isn't it interesting that three of the world's most evil ideologies, Marxism, which is a variant as we've said of socialism, fascism, Adolf Hitler, and now the ideology that is driving the uh, World Economic Forum, which I will call, I'll coin a term here, fascio Marxism, they've all come out of Germany. Mm. What is in the drinking water there? It's not schnapps. <laughs> There's something else that they're drinking over. It's because they've all come out of Germany and they're all these ideologies that are about reorganizing humanity according to somebody's warped ideas or principles. But that teases the issue. Don't know if we'll get to it next week. I'm still still not there, but I'm getting there. Okay, and on that cheery note, <laughs> <laughs> we'll take a break. We'll be I need right a sweet back. Roll. <laughs> we'll be right back. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Larry is my favorite player. Welcome back. As usual, we need a camera during the break um, called Surviving Crazy. But today's topic is surviving conflict. And it's a good one because it really will put a fine point on the things that we talked about during our last episode. But take me, take me to the genesis of <laughs> to your... To that place. <laughs> to that crazy place. What do you mean surviving conflict with crazy? Well, it, it seems that this... You know, we weren't really planning to do this show, but there are our friends and listeners who have listened who have said, okay, now the follow-up to this is if you guys did a little bit of a deeper dive on we the, the previous show, just to, so you know how we flow into the topic of surviving conflict, is uh, we were dealing with um, sin, repentance, 
reconciliation and restoration. And uh, that was a deep dive on the issue of, you know, of, of, of what real gritty, real world, you know, problems look like when sin gets involved and how people react to that and how we seek forgiveness and how, how we, we extend it um, to other people. So some people felt that, well, we need a little bit more on the issue of surviving conflict. And the fact is, whether you're a Christian or not, you're going to have conflict. I mean, we see it throughout Scripture. Uh, maybe, maybe uh, um, yeah, it just occurs to me as we're, as we're talking, uh, a, uh, a, a model might be, say, for instance, Paul and Barnabas. Mm, yes. uh, what's interesting is that Luke records in the book of Acts... He records um, the story of conflict between. He doesn't tell us what happened. He just says that they they disagree. It seems over over John Mark, and um, and the two of them split. Fascinatingly, Luke never lays blame on either party, and it seems they just got on with the gospel. It doesn't seem like there was great bitterness involved. They might just be two people who their personalities they just didn't mesh, and sometimes conflict is like that that there's there's not sin to be laid at either party they're just they're just personalities that don't work well well together we've all experienced that but i do think that there are are people who you know are looking for real answers on a topic like that so how do we fortify our lives so that we survive conflict and how many times have we seen be they christian or not you know, members of a of a business or a law firm who, you know, they've they've got the 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 fish on the on on the doorway or the license plate, but they're threatening each other with lawsuits, or they never speak to each other again. These things do happen, and um, so I think that's where that's where the topic comes from. And it's very helpful because there are people who did very much appreciate the podcast and gained from it. And there is more because there are people still sitting there saying, yeah, but how do we do it? And how do we do it well? Well, let me just turn it around and ask you, um, because your life is full of conflict. You're a, a, a woman who's at war with everyone. No, seriously. <laughs> um, no, but I do. I really want to I want to pull you into this this conversation uh, because you have a lot of wisdom um, on this issue. And let's just take a kind of a generic um, conflict example. Okay. So two parties, you find yourself in conflict with another person. And let's assume that person is a believer. I think that matters also the way that, that you respond. What, what are the first things you seek to do when you find yourself in conflict with, a, with another person? I think the very first thing is to ask, I would ask myself, what did I do? What am I responsible for? Always starting with you. Because I think it's too early or it's too easy to go pew, pew, pew and try to go straight at the other person. But you're in conflict with another person for a reason. Start with yourself. Because I think that would assure that that conversation is going to happen and head into a place coming from humility. I think if we're always after the other person, because it's so much easier to look out. Yeah. It is very hard to look in because sometimes the hard truth is you really screwed up yeah. and you're really wrong, but pride often gets in the way when we're in that situation. So I think for me, the older I get, the more I appreciate the advice that I've gotten over the years. Start with you. 
Start like with your that. heart. That's uh, that's excellent. Um, some people are are better at being introspective than others. You know, there are some people who can't. It seems they're incapable of self evaluation. Other people are good at that. Do you do you find that it's also helpful? to try to give an honest assessment of the situation to another party, maybe to Chris, maybe, maybe to a, a, a girlfriend mm-hmm. and say, Hey, here's the situation to seek their wisdom before you take action. Do you do anything like that? In the abundance of counsel, there is wisdom. <clears throat> the Proverbs say, or Psalms, but I've, I've clung, somewhere in the Bible. Some, it's, it's in the good book. <laughs> it's not red letters, but it's in there. So yes, I run things by people. Chris and I start with each other, but then we each have people that we can reach out to. We have friends who are counselors that we talk to, because I think it's very important to be able to say, here it is, bring it out of the darkness, put it into the light. This is the situation. Um, And I think the Bible is very clear on that. That means, as we've talked about in other shows, not everybody gets that conversation. So you need to know who those people are who have a strong walk with the Lord, who love you enough to look at you in the face and say, that's wrong. And and you got that wrong. Or there are people who say, I love you. Don't get a big hand over this. But like, I don't, I don't see that you did anything wrong here, but this is where the conflict is. And this is what you could have said differently. But I think having not only starting with yourself, but also starting with a posture of humility, not only dealing with other people, but when you take your problem to somebody and say, I need you to kind of give me some counsel on this, being humble, um, because that's hard. That's not fun. That part's not fun either. But the Bible is a mirror, and it reflects our how we don't meet the standard. And I think that's what counselors can be as well, is to say, this is where the standard wasn't met, not because you're coming after the person. I like what you said. This was months ago. You said you're not coming and running down a person. You're coming at the problem. That's really what you're coming at. And really, if we're looking at it from a biblical worldview, it is a principality. It's what we can't see that we're coming against. We're coming against the enemy of our soul, ultimately. And so I think that's also what I try to keep in my mind when dealing with a conflict is Mm. really where it's coming from. You know, there is a scene in uh, Jane Austen's Emma. Oh, I love that. Which... Yes, I did watch it. I have been subjected to a great many movies (laughs) that I would not otherwise watch. But there's a scene in the the movie with with Gwyneth Paltrow um, where Emma humiliates a woman in her social circle and she gets up to leave and uh, Mr. Knightley follows her. And I love this scene. The whole movie is worth watching for this one scene. And he catches up to her and he says, badly done, Emma, badly done. And then he goes on to explain to her, her offense. You humiliated her. Your station is such that you might have shown her grace. You might have shown her kindness. She has never been anything but kind to you. She has loved you since childhood and you humiliated her. And then he says, I tell you this because I love you. Meaning he's not there just to beat up on her. There, If you're one of those people out there who says, I tell you this in love, you better love that person. Amen. You uh, Do not come to me and tell me something in love unless you have that place in my life. 
that you know you're not granted that right to just come and dump on me whatever you think or feel that's a very small circle of people who have that right to do that and obviously the way the the, the novel and the film set this up Mr. Knightley has that space in her life she's prepared to accept his his rebuke because she knows he does care about her mm-hmm. Uh, he said enough things in the other direction, um, that is to say positively, that, she, that, that the rare rebuke she takes very, very seriously. And tears begin to flow, and they're tears of repentance because she knows that what he says is right, and she's deeply ashamed. And it's, the, it's a beautiful scene, actually, because you love her response. It's not a response of, of self-justification and denial it's a response that she realizes that he is right and that what she what she had done was a shameful thing. We've all been guilty of that. But to be able to honestly present a conflict to a third party um, is important because we can tell the story in such a way that, that the other person is the villain, quite obviously, and we manipulate the person we're talking to. So they say, well, of course, you know, Larry, you're 100% right in this situation. So being able to give an honest assessment and truly seek wisdom from someone else, how do I move forward in this? What is it that I need to do? Is there something I'm not seeing? Mm-hmm. And sometimes other people can see something in ourselves yes. or in a circumstance that we're not Saying, you know, what was your motivation in saying that, Amy Beth? Larry, why did why did you do X? What was going on in your heart when you did that? And most of these things come down to the heart. It's not just simply about words. Sometimes we can say the wrong words that appear to have a malicious intent. I mean, I shared one actually before the show. We will not relate it here. But, um, you know, when I was in college, there was no malice in my heart when I stated that. I meant no insult. I assure you, I was I was just as pure-hearted in that statement uh, as I might have been, but the words were hurtful. It didn't dawn on me that it, that it would be perceived that way. I was very naive in that, and so sometimes you're you're seeking forgiveness by clarification. You think I meant that that there was this was going on, and that I meant to needle you and stick it to you. When the reality is, nothing could have been further from my mind. Exactly the opposite, in right. fact, in the circumstance that we're, that, that we're talking about. Um, sometimes, though, our words might be very kind, and this is this is very true in the South when the intent is to cut somebody's throat. Oh. This this comes back to an ABS segment, you know, way back, and you know what I'm going to say. Bless your heart. <laughs> Bless your heart. Bless your heart almost always precedes a nuclear, mm-hmm. you know, statement. Not always. There are. Uh, I've I've thought back on on that ABS moment um, because there are times. In fact, I've used it in the past week of people who are in extremely dif- difficult circumstances where I'm thinking, "Bless their heart. This is this is so difficult, and that person is hurting and is struggling, going through a hard time." So I mean it with all compassion. But there are occasions that 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 Southerners, if you're not from the South, and somebody says, "Bless your heart." Most of the time, well, I, I don't, I'm not prepared to say that. Many times, you just didn't know that they just cut you off straight at the knees totally with a you. smile. With the smile and bless your heart <laughs> was really in place of probably a curse word or two. That's, that's right. Uh, but they were probably in church or had sweet tea in their hand, <laughs> so they couldn't do it. 
you know, but that that is excellent. So it's a matter of the heart. It is a matter of the heart. And I think you you just brought something up that's wonderful because it allows me to ask a question that I'm I'm ruminating on because this has happened to you in situations that you've been in. But when those people either they try to cut you off at the knees by cloaking something in a beautiful Christian Christianese, or they say something like, oh, you know, we used to be like that, or we used to be just like you. Yeah. And you know, your heart goes, <laughs> what just happened here? And so you go into the fight or flight yeah. and you don't even know what to say because you're so caught off guard by their brazenness to say something ugly to your face and get away with it. Yeah. So what do you do when you're, you're at, at coffee with someone? It's years of practice. What What do you do? All right. So you're at coffee with somebody and they want to have a conversation with you, but really what they want, they're coming with knives out. Yeah. How do you handle that situation? And the wheels have fallen off and like one minute in, you're like, oh, this isn't going to go well. What do you do? Um. Well... Uh, sometimes I think our our social Christianity, let me put it that way, but that I don't mean authentic Christianity. I mean this veneer that everything is good, everything is fine, um, and that we're we're at least have the superficial appearance of being nice at all moments. I think there are times where you're uh, listen. I I, I am. Uh, how shall I put it? I'm of a of a very mixed marriage. My mother is a Canadian. To to this day, my mother is uh, she's a Canadian citizen. She's she's never gotten um, U.S. citizenship, though she's lived in the United States for, you know, gosh, how long has she lived? Sixty years plus. She's lived in the the United States. My father was from you know from L.A. as we say, Lower Alabama, and um, so glad you clarified there, that. There there are. I'm a little bit of both. And one of the things that I don't think I, maybe this is a product of personality has nothing to do with my parentage, but I don't think I'm very good at hiding what I really think. Mm. I'm not good at that. Mm -hmm. If I'm not happy in a situation, I, I'm not going to say that I'm mean about it, but I, I, I'm not, I don't camouflage it. And it's not because I'm trying to be passive aggressive or, or something. It is just simply, I'm not going to put lipstick on a pig. You know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that everything's happy when I'm, when I'm not, when I'm unhappy. And I feel like that's authentic. I, you know, it's not being aggressive. I feel like that's a, a better way of handling things. And also because I, I prefer if I'm told that so-and-so said X about me, that was, you know, let's say vicious uh, or unkind, or that they're unhappy with me about something I don't the, then go to talk to 10 other people. I go straight to that person to see if it's true. I think that's the biblical model. Right. You know, you go to that person. Scripture tells us that. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, that's what he, what he tells us. You, you go to your brother. So I endeavor to do that. But as it comes to, you know, if I'm in, in conflict, or excuse me, I'm in the, you know, the coffee scenario that you're talking about, and someone begins to sort of dump out on me something that I feel like you don't have this place in my life. Mm. I didn't ask for this. I just end the conversation and I try to end it very politely. Um, but I start polite and then I get less polite if it just keeps going. And I'm mindful, for instance, of an individual who somehow got my number and sent me this lengthy text um, telling me something they didn't like about, uh, I don't know if it was a podcast or an article or whatever, and said, may I offer you some advice? And I replied, no, thank you. 
I've, I don't think they were sincere in asking the question. They assumed that I would immediately that respond. Outstanding. And I said, no, thank you. I said, I do have people who occupy this space in my life. My wife, chief among them, right. um, who will say, you know, I didn't like what you said in that, or, you know, I don't think you should say that, or, you know, whatever the case may be. And this person went nuclear. Really? When the moment I said, and it went on about, you know, how dare you tell me I can't tell you that, that and I said, but you asked. I mean, you did ask me if you could get, offer me your opinion. I felt like it was safe for me to not invite it because I already have counselors, yes. lowercase c, right. advisors, right. you know, who, who, who offer me their wisdom. And I don't need to invite another one who I don't really know and whose, whose wisdom I don't trust. So I'm very politely pushing back and saying, no, thank you. I think you're justified in doing that. I appreciate that so much because I think, especially in the South, we believe that we have to take everything that people give to yes. us rather than putting it through, let's say for the chefs among us, the spaghetti colander yeah. uh, and see what makes it through, right? Um, sifting out what gets to stay and what goes because everybody who wants to offer advice does not have your best at heart. Uh, it often feels like it's about them and not about you. But I And that usually and, and pardon me for one second. Yeah. And that usually is what it's about. In this case, the guy did not really have my best in mind. Correct. I knew that he didn't from the tone of 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 the text. Hence the reason I, among other reasons, he just doesn't occupy that space in my life. But, but secondly, I I could tell that this wasn't somebody who had my best interest in mind. This was somebody who wanted to tell me off. Mm. And listen, in our our world, that by that I mean in this profession, you are. If, if I'm to be called an apologist, which some watching, you know, the TV version. Uh, of this on NRB. You can watch this on uh, channel 378 on DirecTV uh, on NRB. Many of those people are watching this. They, If they know Larry Taunton at all, they know him as a Christian apologist. But see, I'm not really in the Christian space. I'm mostly writing for secular publications. I'm often doing secular shows. And so you get attacked viciously from people who do not agree with you. And some of them, if they're in the South, they want to cloak that with a with a very civil veneer as I'm really trying to help you out. And when you tell them you're not interested, they become they become so aggressive. And I feel like that outs them for what their real intent yes. actually was. Yes. Absolutely. And I think that is sometimes, even like training up the kids before they left home, telling them sometimes you won't know the validity of your decision until you've made it, until you've expressed it, yes. and then they'll turn on you. Whether it's dating, whether it's classes, whether it's work, beware. God gave you a mind and your senses for a reason, those feelings that you have. Marry those together and you'll get it figured out, but beware. And so my kids are learning that, that People reveal themselves after that no or after that I'm good. And I think I really appreciate what you said about that. That's outstanding. When we come back in just a second, um, we're getting all the signals over here. But when we come back in just a second, I want to talk about not revealing too much as it, as it applies to social media. So, so let's do that when we come back in just a sec. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. 
The opinions expressed here do not reflect those of Democrats, atheists, Muslim radicals, environmentalists, globalists, socialists, the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, soccer fans, or men who eat quiche. But they should. Welcome back. So, Larry, you just made a good point. And let's let's dive into this a little bit. This concept of being too open. Yes, when dealing with conflict, part of the way that that I think we we manage conflict and deal with it is by not being too open about things. Um, I have said, I think, on this show that that transparency, which is something that is that is pushed these days in churches. I, excuse me, that was a little bit of a sweet roll coming back on me. Um, or it's my fault. It is. Yes, she brought some sweet rolls today that are quite good. But anyway, um, I think that uh, transparency is pushed. I don't see transparency as being biblical. I think the devil loves transparency. There are things where you, you do not need to be transparent about. In fact, you need to be quite guarded uh, about. And uh, conflict might be one of those things. I mean, these days, with social media might be the actual ruin of this country. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic in saying that. I mean, it might literally be mm-hmm. the ruin of this country, um, the divisions that we're seeing, um, and also the way it's, it's used to promote uh, all kinds of godless things. But, but how often have you seen a situation like this where somebody is in conflict and they go and dump it all over Facebook? Yes. Um, that's not the way to deal with conflict. Um, or, you know, they, they go and, and, uh, um, are, are spilling it, you know, at church or, you know, in their social circles, that's not the way to deal with conflict either. I think that people need to have and see some level of integrity in the way you're managing it, because I think people respect that. If I know, you know, for instance, that you're upset with me and I see that that the people around me that we both know aren't now becoming parties to the conflict because you are now weaponizing them against me. I respect you for that. And that shows me that there's an integrity in the way you're you're managing the conflict. And it it drives me to want to to, to bring about real reconciliation. And there are people who in conflict, they weaponize every other party that that person knows. Mm, yes. And by going and rushing and making sure they get their version of the story first. Yes. Because they want to turn them against you. Have you ever seen that? Have you uh, ever witnessed that? That's, yeah. I, I, that's as godless as can be. To do something like that. I think that we have to think about in, in our conflicts, we have to think of a party of one. This, this was very helpful to me in a, in a, a severe conflict is I kept thinking to myself, I might be losing on a, on a horizontal plane, meaning, I don't know, maybe maybe loads of friends you know, have turned against me or are being weaponized against me in some situation. But I, I'm, only, I'm only really focused on a vertical plane. At the end of the day, I want to please God. And if that means you know, maybe sort of losing mm-hmm. um, in this arena, I, I want to be able to stand with a clean conscience before him. And so uh, it's a party of one. 
that I'm trying to please. It's a party of one. And I just, I remind myself of that. And I think when you do remind yourself of that, it affects your behavior because you're less about winning the argument. You're less about winning the conflict. You're more about, Lord, what do you want me to do? What would please you in this this situation? What would you have me do? Do you want me to go dump it all on Facebook? Do you want me to go gossiping about it? Do you want me to go about poisoning the minds of other people about this person. And last week, we said, um, I said that I had a simple test for um, forgiving people with whom I'm in, in conflict or have been in conflict. But I think it applies to seeking remedy in a conflict. And that is if I can pray blessing for them. Mm-hmm. If I can't pray blessing on them, then my heart is not right. My heart is not right. And that that doesn't mean that you're immediately ready to do that. Right. You know, the Lord, the Lord created us multidimensional and we're we're not just intellectual beings. We 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 do have emotions, and emotions are are part of this entire equation. There, there has to be a balance there, but the the feelings that we have when we feel wounded by another person are real. Um there's there's justification for for feeling outrage or anger or uh, something like that hurt uh, within our conflicts but it it becomes problematic if you can't get to a place where you can pray blessing for that individual and that's all part of making making the lord the the party of one that you're pleasing it isn't so much about pleasing that individual. It's about pleasing the Lord. And then everything else kind of falls in place. And, and I, I thought of this during, during the break, a friend of mine in South Dakota who listens to the show, he was listening to the, to the last show on sin, forgiveness, uh, excuse, excuse me, sin, repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And he asked this, he said, is real repentance an emotion, a decision or an action or something else? Or is it a combination? And I replied, it takes place at a much deeper level than any of these. It's a conviction of the heart that you have committed an offense against a person or God and that you're sorry for it. That may manifest itself emotionally in different ways with different people. It may, usually does, require the action of telling God or that person or both that you are sorry and you seek their forgiveness. So at the end of the day... Conflict in our actions dealing with the conflict, it's not that actions are irrelevant, but it begins with the heart. What is the state of your heart? Uh, are, we're all very good, particularly in Christian circles, in saying the right things. Oh, I'm a sinner too. Right. <laughs> that's like the Southern bless your heart. Uh huh. That's right. And, and where people, uh, you know, more often than not, they say that very insincerely, they don't mean it. Or do you begin by searching? I loved what you said. By you're, you're searching your own heart, your own actions, your own intentions in something that led to conflict. And can you honestly stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I was, I was not guilty in this. It was not my intention to give offense. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can honestly say that, I mean, that's good. If you can't, then you need to repent of that and you know and 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 tell that other party or again as we've said in the previous segment perhaps perhaps you need to explain bring clarification to what your intentions were and the way maybe something uh, we've all given offense unintentionally right 
For sure. You know, you had your Muslim neighbors over and you fed them barbecue. You know what they were? <laughs> they, Larry. Took, they took offense <laughs> at the pork feast. But Larry um, Taunton at. <laughs> I mean, how do you respond to all that? You know, I, th- I was thinking while you were talking that there's something else in addition to examining your heart, examining your attitudes, emotions, all those things. There's also something else, and I love being able to pray. I think praying for the people is so important, whoever that is. But it's also asking yourself, because sometimes you're in conflict and this is going to be the case, but it also involves you starting with yourself is, when was the last time you said you were sorry to somebody? Yeah. Oh, boy. When when are you saying without excuse, without dishing out blame, without saying, like we talked about last week, a blanket, I'm sorry for everything. What does that mean? But when was the last time you looked at yourself and you're like, oh, dear, it's me. I <laughs> am sorry, yeah. period. And sometimes we really dig in our heels and say, I'm not going to say I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, like five-year-olds, but we're grown people. And you're like, I'm not saying it. They're not saying it. I'm not saying it. But really and truly risking even humiliating yourself because it's been so long. But to say, when was the last time I honestly said, I am sorry. A soft answer turneth away wrath. And uh, boy, have I seen those occasions where an individual said they were sorry and wrath just evaporated, almost like an exorcism was performed. You know, that other party just melts yeah. before sincere repentance. I, I did that. I am so sorry I did that. I shouldn't have done that. Listen, living in community, mm. living in a family... Working with people closely, you will offend them. You're going to. It's just going to happen. And um, you hope that your relationships and your bonds are strong enough that if you're the offended party, you can give the benefit of the doubt. Right. You know, I know Phil, again, Phil, I'm not picking on you. Um, I know Phil well enough to know that Phil is a good guy. Right. And he he just blew it here. Um, we we need to we we need to make sure that the bonds of the relationship are are strong enough. I think every good relationship must survive a serious conflict. Yes, every good relationship will go through it. I don't care if it's your best friend from childhood. It was funny. I think back as kids, and this is maybe just boys. We might get into fistfights, and in five minutes later, we're back on the we're back in the sandbox, you know, playing with our Tonka trucks. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know. Which you, were awesome, by the way. Which were absolutely awesome. But we might we might find ourselves, um, you know, just having fisticuffs, expending it all, and then finding ourselves laughing about it, and, uh, and then moving on. But every meaning, every good relationship, I think, has to survive a conflict, and it's better and stronger for the conflict. That's right. So you have to do I that. I love that. I think that is fantastic because often I think we're, we assume not only is our sin not that bad or whatever we've done is not that offensive, but we don't realize that when we do apologize, when we do make it right, there's something beautiful, that knitting together mm-hmm. that happens that really does make that strong like brawny, yeah. for example, but it really does 
do something that is Holy Spirit driven, yeah. that is inexplicable in human terms, yeah. but in the in God's economy, it's beautiful. And we're afraid of that though, because we don't want to, we want to hold on. We want to hold on because it feels better because sometimes being mad feels good. Well, and that's where you are in serious. Yes. You, you're now in the, you know, that needle is in the red mm. and you, you are, um, you, you're testing God. Uh, you are, are putting yourself in, uh, in danger of God's wrath in a big way when you're nursing that anger and where you want to hang on to it. And listen, those are people you want to get out of your life. Uh, it may very well be that somebody feels that way initially and they get over it. But somebody who's, this becomes a settled disposition of I'm not reconciling um, the relationship. I'm not seeking to hear what you have to say. I don't want to hear your side of it. I want to believe what I want to believe. Again, I come back to something I said in an earlier podcast um, that, uh, that a friend said to me, and that is uh, there are some people who think the worst of you, they want to think the worst of you. They want that. And you you notice that, by the way, when the conflict blossoms into so much more. You know, um, you know, you've offended uh, X party um, because you you made an offhanded comment over um, uh, over coffee, and it's a, it's a fairly minor conflict. But then, what comes dumping out are all these offenses over the course of years mm. that they never said a word to you about. Right. And now it's it's become you know a full blown. You know, that's just awful to do that. You know if you're. If, if it's an issue you're not prepared to say something about at the time, then shut up Yes, and move on. Either address it or say nothing. And uh, for me, there's kind of a, there's kind of a uh, statute of limitations on, on that kind of thing. You know, when you're trying to dig out something I did a decade ago that you didn't, you didn't say anything about, give me the opportunity to repent of it or at least offer some, uh, some explanation um, for, um, then you know that becomes problematic, but I, but I want to throw something else in here that that might be very helpful to people. Uh, when I was uh, when I was in seminary, I remember taking a course that I thought would be one of the most useful useless courses, and it's maybe the most useful course that I ever took. And uh, it was a course called Bowen B O W E N Bowen Family Systems. Hmm. Now Bowen Family Systems is a very it's a very it's 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 applied not just to families. It's not applied not just to um, um, to say conflict, but it's 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 applied to corporations, and it's a way of sort of seeing how relationships work. And Boeing Family Systems, for instance, sees sees families or um, communities as functioning like a kind of organism. Okay, so like a hand, let's say, and that there's people who play different roles. Um, in a, in a given group. And uh, for instance, there's somebody who slips into the role of the class clown, and then there's the, the very serious person, and there's the, uh, the person who plays the empathizer in, in all this. And when those groups, an individual moves from the, that group, the, the dynamic 
of the group changes because people slip into, this is all takes place subconsciously, right. but they slip into different slots. So now the person who, and you see this by the way, biblically, because once John and um, I believe it's John and Peter, Peter who dragged before the Sanhedrin early in, in uh, excuse me, early in the book of Acts, mm -hmm. they are, the Sanhedrin, they're, the, the Sadducees and Pharisees are shocked. They say, aren't these these simple fishermen? I mean, aren't, weren't these the guys mm. who, you know, you know, Peter had just not not long before had had shrank in cowardice when a a servant girl asked him if he knew knew Jesus, and of course he denied him three times. Now he's in a very different place, and it's because Christ has uh, has ascended, and now they're feeling the, the Holy Spirit has come, and they're filling a slightly different role. So they're all manifesting themselves in slightly different ways. We've all witnessed this. But one of the things in, in this process that I found incredibly helpful is that he argues that in any conflict of two, there is almost always a third unseen party to the conflict. Wow. And until you identify who that party is, you will not solve the conflict. Now think about this for just a moment. This proves to be, it's, in other words, most conflicts are a triangle because there's someone else who is playing a role. They're, they're, you know, you're in conflict with your daughter, let's say, and you don't realize, and again, this is an imaginary situation. I'm not saying this is happening in the, uh, in the Shaver household, but what you don't know is that there's a boyfriend or another party to the conflict who is feeding your daughter's head, well, you need to say this to your mother, or I wouldn't put up with that, or this kind of thing. And you're wondering, where, where is this coming from? I've never heard her say things like this before. What's going on? You must identify who the parties are, are who are in the conflict. You know, and there's a triangle. A dear friend of mine taught me about this several years ago, and you probably learned this in seminary or along the way, that 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 third, the part, the idea of three, the controller, yeah. the victim, and the enabler, and the only way to get out of that, you're exactly right, is to take all of them, own whatever part you are on them, and we all play the controller, the victim, and the enabler, and walk through it, owning it, and walking through is the only way to get out. You yeah. don't get around it; you got to go through it. Yeah. And I love that that there's that third person that you have to identify unseen. unseen. That's fantastic. Third unseen party to the conflict. And I find that that is almost always true. Mm. So, you know, we, we have to sometimes, and, and listen, I want to say this. I'm not suggesting that this is, uh, that Bowen family systems is, you know, inspired by scripture. That's not my point or, or you know, our triangles or whatever geometric right. shapes right. <laughs> we seek to bring into this, that those are, um, you know, infallible. We're just simply saying that, that these reflect a certain measure of, um, of scriptural truth. And, uh, you know, you take, for instance, um, you know, we looking at, at, at the gospel of John, um, you, you see, uh, you know, Jesus, Jesus offering bread to um, to Judas, and it says that Satan entered into him, mm -hmm. entered into Judas, and uh, he took it, ate it, and then he departed, and it was night. Well, there was a third. There was a third party to that conflict who was most definitely unseen, and that was the devil himself. That's right. And sometimes that's who the third party is. But 
sometimes you're you're trying to logically get a handle on what it is that you're dealing with and you see a person who's responding to you in a way that's very different than is reflected in your history with that individual and that is almost always reflective that there's an, there's someone else they're quoting there's someone else they're bringing to bear in this but aren't naming hmm who is actually a party to the conflict. And so you, you have to identify um, who that is. But always, again, I just keep hammering this home. It begins with the heart. That's right. This isn't just about your superficial actions. It isn't just about you know some 12-step program or something like that that's going to get you through it. The fact of the matter is, if your heart is not pure before the Lord in what you're seeking, you will not get a pure outcome. Well, that'll preach. So on that, let's take a break and we'll come back and wrap up. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Larry Alex Staunton Show, also known as the shit show. Welcome back. So last thoughts <laughs> on this topic. It's not funny, but we have a lot of fun in between. We so. do. And it's a, it's a hard topic. You know, it and is. I'm very grateful to the fact that the the Lord somehow manages to keep these heavy topics on this show. We remain fairly good humored about this, partially because we know a, a lot about what about different things that that we know that are going on in the lives of friends um, mm-hmm. that have happened in our own lives. Uh, things both good and bad that we've we've witnessed and that we've learned. So this is coming through decades of hard knocks. These are things that I wish I'd been told. You know, at 15. Um, And, um, you know, I would say that only until fairly recently, the way that I tried to solve a conflict was to try to reason with an individual because I really believed if I could sit down with them that and have a rational conversation and we could hear each other, that that would would solve things. And then it, it dawned on me, you know, America's for this... As a historian, I have to default to that. America's foreign policy has for decades operated with this naive assumption that Osama bin Laden, if he, if we could just sit down with him. And have tea. And have tea with sure. him. Yeah, and hookah. You sure, know, sure. You know, Let's go. Just, just pass that around. If we could, if we could do that, I mean, Cheerio. we have to, be, we have to be culturally appropriate. Sure. If we could do that with him, he would have gone, oh, well, gosh, I mean, America is such a great place. I had no idea you guys meant us no harm. The fact is Osama bin Laden understood America very well, and he hated it. And unfortunately, there are people like that that you will meet. I'm not saying they want to blow you up, but they're, but but maybe figuratively speaking, they do. Right, right. There are people in your life that you are. I remember being attacked by Seth Rogen, the actor. Seth Rogen? Yes, on, uh, on Twitter. And I was trying to reason with him. This was in my more naive days. And the guy is just trashing me right and left. Penn Jillette did the same thing to me. And where you're thinking, if I'm I'm in the conversation thinking, if I could have a conversation here, because I'm an admirer. Not, Seth Rogen, I think, is a clown. But Penn Jillette, I think, is quite gifted. Mm-hmm. And he said a number of things that I, I find very, very interesting. And I think this is a guy that I think I could have. But I... I'm getting dumped on in such a way that I realize nothing I'm going to say here, particularly with their Twitter, you know, fandom, you know, coming into the conversation that, that's going to to work in this. Those are situations you have to push back against. But let me ask you a question, you know, as we as we begin to wrap up um, the show today, 
let's end it on a hopeful note. Have you, we could probably both of us think of times where we've been in conflict and because we didn't handle it biblically, or maybe the other party didn't handle it biblically, it didn't have a happy outcome. Can you think of instances in your own life where you've seen beautiful forgiveness? Yes. I have a friend, as you know, I have code words now, Trudy and Gert. Yeah, that's right. And Trudy was in conflict. I'm glad you remembered that. It's coffee that's nameless in my mug that's nameless. But Trudy was in a situation, and it was a two-year-long situation, and examined, looked over, very painful, like lots of tears situation. And someone had spoken ill of this person and spread rumors. Look, it was not fun. Yeah. But the one who had done the offense found Trudy and came back. They had a meal. Apologies happened from the one who did the offending. And that relationship was restored. And it was beautiful. Isn't that something? Isn't that, isn't the that Lord works in the happens? heart because there were, and I asked Trudy later, no excuses were given. I am sorry. This is what I did. Here it is. And it was fine. You know, there is, there is a film I would uh, point people to to, um, to watch that I think deals with this very powerfully. It's, um, it's, it's told in a very Christian way, and it's... Um, uh, it's a little short story. I've read the short story, um, and the film, which very rarely happens, is a perfect mirror of the um, of the little short story, and it's by Isak Dennison, which was the uh, the pen name of Karen Blixen, Baroness Blixen, and it is called Babette's Feast. Babette's Feast won, I think, uh, an Oscar in 1985 for the best foreign film. These days, it would never get that, and I encourage you to watch it. And you will, I want to warn you, the first hour and a half, you will think, why did he tell me to watch this? Because this is a sheer bore. <laughs> but what you don't realize that she's doing and that the, the director of this film did faithfully, is doing brilliantly, is they are setting you up for the payoff. Meaning that it's like, it's like, <laughs> uh, you know, I... I, in order to make a symphony sound very good to you, I, I give you nothing but silence for an hour and a half. And then when that symphony, those, mm. those strings, yeah. uh, you begin to hear them, it's wow, rather than just a cacophony of noise. So this film is it's showing you what living under the law is like. And it's all these people who live in this community. Um, and they don't make fun of these, these Christians who live in a kind of commune. They're very legalistic. They are uh, uh, sincerely so. They think they're working out their salvation by you know, removing themselves from the world. But the end of the film is building up to this beautiful feast. And it's a feast that is a spiritual experience. No None of us will ever experience anything like this until we go to heaven, meaning no such feast has ever, mm -hmm. has ever occurred. But they invite um, very successful people from the surrounding community, a field marshal and, a, you know, I think uh, a, a few other people who have also pursued 
a kind of salvation in a worldly way. So these people are doing it by living in a you know very Spartan existence, others in a somewhat hedonistic way, and they're they're equally empty. And then they experience grace. And the the film is beautiful. It's beautiful because these legalistic people, they all begin to experience grace in a, in a beautiful way. And one of my favorite scenes, Babette, whose hands are never seen at the table, meaning she's, she's a kind of a Christ figure who is in the kitchen who sends out servants with waves of food. Mm. She's never seen, but her servants are who are uh, all these people. And she, there's this, this beautiful, beautiful scene where this field marshal, who is a man of culture, I mean, he's been around the world. He knows a good wine when he has it. And um, he tastes, uh, takes a drink of this wine, and he sits up and he says, this is a, I, I don't know, a, a Napoleon brandy. And uh, like, how in the world did this arrive here, this incredibly expensive? And Babat in the back says to this boy, go back out and refill his glass and leave the bottle. Mm. Wow. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's very beautiful so that an arm comes over, fills his glass, his eyes get big, and then the bottle is left, and he turns to look as if to say, are you really leaving me the bottle? And it, again, it's this picture of, of, you know, my cup overflows. This is the abundance, you know, Christ feeding the, the, the 5,000. Baskets are left. Such is his grace. And what happens when these people experience grace is these decades-long conflicts begin coming to an end. And a man says, you know, for years I've held it against you for cheating me. But the fact is I cheated you too. Wow. <laughs> and the other guy says, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and they both clink their glasses and, and someone gets up and quotes Psalm 8510, surely um, truth and bliss have kissed, meaning two very irreconcilable things. Uh, uh, John chapter one says that in him, truth and grace, mm -hmm, right. you know, that the two have met in the person of Jesus Christ. The two are utterly irreconcilable. Truth assumes that no mistakes have been made. Grace assumes mistakes have been made. You know, uh, uh, how do these two meet and yet they've met beautifully in the person of Jesus Christ and when they meet in the person of Jesus Christ that's that's grace that comes out and these people they hold hands and they go outside and they begin to sing and i love the picture uh, of that because at the end of the day forgiveness reconciliation ending conflict it only comes through grace. There are secular versions of this, meaning God's common grace is such that, that we have secular reflections of it in the culture. You don't have to be a believer to show mercy to an individual and to forgive them. But that goodness that, that, that an unbeliever is showing, even in that circumstance, they don't know it, but it comes from God himself. Right. It's modeled by our Lord in forgiving us. So how dare us? To hold a grudge against another person, how dare us, uh, um, you know, injure them with it, you know, in an ongoing way? So the the idea again is the heart. Where's your heart in the conflict? You're not going to solve the conflict until your heart gets right. 
And in so doing, it may be that you don't bring it into the conflict, but you can withdraw from it in Romans 12, 18 manner. In so far as it depends on me, I'm at peace with all men. If the bridge is burnt between us, you burned it. I didn't burn it. It's free for you to come across. And I await you on the other side with open arms, and I'm prepared to acknowledge my sin against you. If indeed I have sinned against you, you demonstrate that. And I'm prepared to not make you grovel in seeking my forgiveness. That's what I think it's about. And with that, because nothing more needs to be said, you um, have been watching the Larry Alex Taunton Show. We hope you've enjoyed it, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Turn out the lights. The party's over. They say that all. Ladies and gentlemen, we are grateful for the standing ovation, but there will be no encore for today's performance. Please exit the building in an orderly fashion. Thank you. Honey, can we leave now?